Bonjour, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is one of the preeminent worldwide experts on data presentation, a big deal. Stay tuned to find out who's leaving us speechless on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 50. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics, visualizations, and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hey there. Welcome to the 50th episode of the Present Beyond Measure Show, the Big Five O. Very exciting. This is the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, and digital marketing and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. So I've got a ton of stuff planned for you on this episode, but the big question I have for you today is, I'd like to know what your day looks like tomorrow, because If you happen to be free at either 2 p.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, then I would love for you to join me for my brand new webinar, The Three Secrets to Presenting Compelling Data Stories in PowerPoint and Become the In-Demand Source for Insights in Your Organization Without Putting Your Audience to Sleep. I know that sounds impossible. PowerPoint? Ugh. Keeping them awake? Yeah, right. Well, I get it. And I promise you that with these three secrets, anything is possible when presenting your valuable insights. And these secrets were not taught to any of us in business school or marketer or analyst school. And they took me over 10 years to curate and integrate. But it doesn't have to take you that long and you don't have to make the same mistakes I made. So visit the link on the show notes page for the webinar or visit leahpika.com slash three secrets. That's the number three. And I scheduled two presentations that day because I know you're super busy at work and I wanted to give you the best chance of attending. So I look forward to seeing you there. Okay, guys, now for today's interview. Our guest is someone I have been chomping at the bit to have on my show since I created it. Her work has played a pivotal role in my data presentation journey that started over 10 years ago. I've cited her in almost every single keynote, workshop, and training course that I've created. And having her on was like, woo, defining show moment. All right, let's just get to it, shall we? Hello, hello. Today's guest I'm so excited about beyond anything I can imagine. She is a best-selling author and CEO of Duarte Inc. There's a little hint for you, which is the global leader behind some of the most influential visual messages in business and culture, which has created more than a quarter of a million presentations. Like really think about that for a minute. She is a communications expert who's been featured in Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, Wired, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, Time Magazine, 
and CNN, and she's written five best-selling and award-winning books, two of which are on my must-read curriculum list. And she is the author of a brand new book I am busy devouring at the moment called Data Story, Explain Data and Inspire Action Through Story. So the title pretty much says it all, which is why this is so perfect for this show. And I am just beyond humbled and thrilled to welcome Nancy Duarte. Hello. Hello. It's so good to be here. <laughs> oh, thank you so much for taking the time. So just for a little backstory, I've been a fan of yours ever since I discovered Resonate. I had sort of this watershed moment around presentations, and I picked up Presentation Zen and, it, and Slideology, and it kind of snowballed from there. And in particular, your single idea per slide philosophy completely turned everything I knew about presenting on its head. Like it just broke my whole mind open. And even though it was a really challenging philosophy to walk away from bullet points and overstuffed slides and, and charts, I never looked back. So cool. I would actually love to have you share your origin story of how you became and how your company became such an authoritative voice, uh, you know, in the world on telling stories. Now, I remember when I saw my first professional 35 millimeter slide years ago, and I just thought it was so glistening and pretty and projected. And um, I didn't know we would go into this business. It was just this <laughs> fluke. My husband was a technical illustrator. And this is, we're talking the 80s. So we were probably the only people in about a two mile radius that even had a Macintosh. So <laughs> we fell in and we fell hard. And I remember there was this one moment where um, I realized that uh, we had been making slides improperly. And that was when I had this big project for uh, Apple. And the guy was like, now I'm going to make a big point right here, like big. Mm. And, and I said, well, how big is the point? He goes, in fact, it's so big. I want you to just put the word big, really big. Talk about <laughs> it. Just fill the whole slide with the word big. And we did it. And I remember the audience reaction was just so dramatic mm. just because just because there was just one great big word on the slide. But it, it, what we did is kind of went back to the future, like 35 millimeter slides in the olden days. They were highly conceptual. They were visually remarkable. They mm. were uh, compelling. And, and, and you had to finish your slides like two weeks ahead of time, which that never happens today. No. So it was almost like we went back to the future. I actually went to the Stanford Library and got old, old scripts of uh, General Electric, the CEO of General Electric in the archives, our old speeches and slides. And when you look at them, they're so simple and so conceptual mm -hmm. and so profound. In, and they're all like hand-drawn, but they're stunning. And I just feel like we kind of went back to the future and, and making everything simple and just making one point per slide the way we used to do in the olden days. And that's that's amazing to hear because when I think of the olden days, I think back to college where I learned to present and it was all about the overhead slide, the overhead projector and transparency. Uh -huh. And it was about shoving as much on there with a <laughs> with a yeah. erase pen as we could or a Sharpie and, you know, just placing it and displaying it. But it was, I wasn't even sure what purpose it was serving. So it's so interesting to hear that there was another way, maybe even before yeah. that. Yeah. 35 meter, 35 millimeter slide carousel. <laughs> yeah. Maybe we'll have to check that out and see if there's I, some resources. I'm, I'm definitely about a decade older than you. I guess <laughs> just established that. <laughs> Only not in here, Nancy, not in yeah. here. <laughs> okay. I appreciate that. <laughs> 
So tell us, who should read this book? Like, who's going to benefit the most? What kinds of situations are they working with in corporate, not, uh, and with data? It's a great question. So I think that it appeals to almost the two extremes, people that are in data that are nervous about communicating it and mm. people who communicate all the time that are nervous about communicating data. So I, it kind of um, addresses the polar opposites and every role, almost every role, like 67% was the last statistic of roles are uh, data enabled. That means pretty much Mm. it's inevitable that we're all going to be making decisions from or finding opportunities in the data. So this book doesn't address exploring data. Like it starts at the assumption that you've already explored the data. You found a problem or you found an opportunity. I mean, that's the two reasons we collect data, mm, to find a that. problem or to find an opportunity. It's pretty finite. I would love, especially your listenership, if they have other ways or reasons we would explore data, but I just don't know what they are outside of finding an opportunity or finding a problem. So once you found the starts at, I found a problem or an opportunity in the data, and now I need to communicate it. That's mm-hmm. where this book starts. So it doesn't get into exploring it. It touches on bias. It touches on certain th- and assumptions. It touches on those things. But it really is a lot about what do I do now that I found this in the data, and how do I communicate it up, um, and how do I communicate it broadly? I love that. And I want to touch on and reflect something that you've touched on that I think is really important for people to understand is the 60% of roles being data enabled. So I came across a quote from a Forrester state of industry prediction where 25% of the hires and uh, promotions that would happen this year would be in some way driven by data storytelling skills. And I thought that was incredible because I love it. there is so much focus on the hard skills of crunching the numbers, statistical analysis, using the actual platforms and tools. Yeah. But when it comes to actually stepping in a room full of human beings and understanding <laughs> the dynamics going on yeah. silently and outwardly yeah. and giving them a moment where they think about something, they learn something new, they feel propelled to move forward. This is not necessarily the sort of manifesto that we walk into that room with. And that's why this book gets me so excited. Yeah, I'm going to look for that Forrester study. They're definitely uh, Jeff Weiner, who's the CEO of LinkedIn. So they have the data of all the job openings posted and all mm. the candidates to fill them. And it's vast. The soft skills gap is vast yeah. at 1.6 million. And then wow. of the jobs that are simply oral communication, it's a million of the 1.6 million gaps is wow. verbal communication skills. It's huge. And then and then like another, another 100, 240,000 or something like that are written communication skills. So it doesn't do much good for for us to geek out about the data (laughs) if no one can communicate the findings, right? It still is a communication job. Right, exactly. And I think a lot of the practitioners I run into are very comfortable in that number crunching role. And there's a lot of the pieces of the presentation process that scare them. I mean, it's what the supposedly the number one fear, right? Over death. But I I love to encourage anyone to think that they are actually capable of communicating data effectively and that it could be a crucial piece to designing the career that they want. Yeah, it definitely is. I love it. So I'd love to just dive right into this book. So one of the um, 
we talked about showing how important this skill is. And -hmm. of course, you know, we touched on this, that some folks think it's kind of like a bonus skill or a nice to have. So for me, the heart of your book kind of laid within this quote, no matter what your role, your career trajectory will get a big lift from knowing how to first understand, then explain findings in data well. If you learn how to communicate clearly and persuasively, you will stand out from others. Uh So what's been your experience in seeing the difference from just trying to communicate, but then what happens when what you're talking about really happens? What are the pieces that go into that? Yeah, so it is kind of um, in the book, it's done a little bit like a career path, right, where you go from being an individual contributor who can dig in and and create findings in the data. And some people are are more comfortable flicking it over and making it so someone else makes those decisions. And that is fine. Um, But they'll stay, possibly stay an individual contributor for a long time if they don't at some point in time decide that, hey, I think I need to explain this. And that's when you move into a strategic advisor. So one of the reasons that that leap is kind of hard is because it takes a little bit of intuition. It takes, sometimes you don't have all of the data to move forward, but Mm. you have the data is basically shaping a potential future or it's shaping a potential projection. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's hard for people to say, you know what, I'm going to take what I know in my heart and take what I know in my head and combine them and create this new future. Once you, once you do that over and over and over as a strategic advisor, next thing you know, they'll be asking you to become a leader. So I think Mm. you, and then you wind up inspiring others through how you communicate. So it definitely, um, takes people on a lot different path when they become the communicator of the data. And, you know, um, one of the things that Jeff Weiner said in his talk about skills gaps is that AI, it's one of the few things AI, uh, artificial intelligence cannot replace. It cannot so, do it. Yeah, if <laughs> you so look at some that. of the tools and some of the tools are starting to incorporate AI, now artificial intelligence can start to make some conclusions and observations about the data. Mm-hmm. Well, if your whole job is making observations and conclusions about the data, that can one day to a certain level uh, be replaced, you Mm -hmm. know, by a computer, which would be sad. So I think investing in communication skills is the one thing that creates this threshold in someone's career to cross over into becoming a strategic advisor. I absolutely agree with you. And of course, you know, in some of my practices, some uh, people have approached and said, you know, that this is all going to be obsolete. You know, machines will be telling the stories. And for me, I I don't believe we're there yet when a machine can recreate the empathy and insight that a human being can offer to another human being. And if you're really thinking about the roles that could get replaced, I think the ones that require the most machine learning elements, <laughs> analysis and and crunching, those are the ones that I, I'd be most nervous about, yeah. but differentiating yourself with the skill set. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they're they're already starting to serve up observations around the data. That's, yeah. I mean, it's here, it's right. today. <laughs> but the moment that you have to say, oh, here's what the data said. What is the action we need to take? I don't, right. I don't think a computer will be able to pick the right action. <laughs> right. That, that takes intuition. Yeah. We're I talking about like Knight Rider and Starship Enterprise level uh, <laughs> <laughs> calculating. Exactly. Haven't seen it yet. But um, no, I, I loved your, how you phrased it in ter- the, of the path of heads down contributor to inspiring change. Um, 
where it's exploring the data versus explaining. So Mm -hmm. I thought that that was a fantastic way to think about it. Like try to expand on both levels, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So something that I've been teaching about recently is how to approach different stakeholder personae based on their level of technical savvy and business expertise. Um, A lot of times people ask, how do you talk to different types of, (laughs) excuse me, different types of stakeholders in a meeting when they all want different things, they all speak different languages. So obviously from you, I learned that understanding the audience is crucial to success. I love the section that you had on understanding the metrics of success that our stakeholders are measured Mm by, because we don't often remember that they're being measured (laughs) just like we are. So why is this so important and how do presenters go about understanding that? Yeah, I love that. A lot of times when we're digging through the data, we find that problem or opportunity, like I was saying, most of the time you have to communicate it up. And a decision needs to be made and then that decision is made and then it creates a bunch of activities for Mm -hmm. a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. So that's why I felt like specifically for data, I felt like I needed to have something in there about communicating up what's on the hearts and minds of execs at all time, what keeps them up at night, specifically Mm -hmm. the executive suite. And then I, I just... I don't know if it's the first time or not, but I definitely know that um, having an executive write about what an executive's function is, is was important. I Years ago, I went to like a, a CEO group thing. And one of the first speakers that came to the CEO group where we would get together and help each other with our businesses, the very first speaker said, what's the job description of a CEO? And people are like, I don't know. Nobody's ever, I don't know. Like we were, <laughs> we were CEOs, but none of us knew our, what a job description would mm. be. And, um, and over the years, as I've tumbled through time and worked in the C-suite of public companies, we could actually collect and figure out what they're all being measured by, like what's the same across all of them. And then um, that's one of the spreads in the book is if if you find something in data and it appeals to these three things and it's going to the executive suite, you need to understand how they're being measured. Because if it doesn't appeal to these three things, maybe it doesn't need to go to the executive suite for approval. Mm, interesting. So deciding, helping filter out what you actually need to share can, it can help because I know one of the issues, pretty systemic issues I see in our field, and I used to do this too, was what I call the kitchen sink presentation, where every single metric I could possibly find, I would dump in there in sort of a random <laughs> collection and just hope that something stuck. But using that mm-hmm. as a filter for what matters to the audience could be really valuable. Yeah. So... What if, how can presenters start to understand, like learn what those metrics are? Because I know a lot of times, especially the C-level, but any sort of executive or client can sometimes feel unapproachable for Mm -hmm. a presenter. So how can they step forward to try to get to know them better in that way? I think there's, um, one of the important things is to understand how they process information. Like Mm -hmm. I have a client who at the board of directors, he's the head of, he's the uh, chairman of the whole board and, and they're like, never, ever, ever give him anything that's not in a table and it's black, <laughs> no, only can be black or red. Like, you know, you just got to know who you're talking to. And that may sound like a ridiculous thing, but they're a multi-billion dollar company, right? And that's everything's tables in red or black ink. Right. So you really need to know who you're talking to. And it's interesting because you, um, you were saying something about, you know, you, you've got all these charts and you want to cram them all in because you have them. And in this book, I, I posit that you can actually 
actually cram them all in, but call it an appendix, right? So have your narrative <laughs> you. in the front. It could be three to 10 to 15 slides. Make it skimmable. Make it easy to process. Mm-hmm. Have your conclusions there. Make it clear what the action is. You just make it really clear and tight. You can have freaking 300 slides in the appendix. Call it an appendix. Make it an optional read. Right. Some people love that stuff, right? And and it also shows that you did a lot of homework. Eventually, what would happen is you, it, that can get shorter, shorter. They just start trusting you. So you don't have to show mm. as much evidence. That, but the more and more and more you become more and more of a strategic advisor, the less evidence they'll want. I have a gal that I know who actually can text a recommendation from data to the CEO on the corporate jet at a public <laughs> company and get approvals because this person knows they've done their homework. So you don't have to display your homework. It's like when we did math, right? You can do the math or you can show how you did your math. And so it, it, for a while, you have to show the math right. just like you had to when we were learning math, show your math to your teacher, and then they wind up understanding that you really know it and you get to move on to the next principle. So it's kind of the same with telling a data story where you kind of do have to show your math. It doesn't hurt, but you don't have to show it in the um, front where you're actually the making story. your recommendation. Yeah. So it's kind of like you're too young because we already defined our age differences. <laughs> in Try the old, olden days, um, <laughs> we used to do these printed annual reports and the annual report would have this front section that was kind of the glossy human interest. This is how we help human flourishing. And this is mm. all we did for the world. And it was this glossy paper. And then the bulk of the, what's the 10K and stuff like that was matte, black and white, and it had all the charts and the dense prose. So if you think of that as a metaphor, you should put kind of the, the skimmable mm, brief see. version in the front. And if they want to really dig deep, deep into the numbers, it's there in an appendix and they can do that. Oh, that is an interesting metaphor. Exactly. Because what are people going to want to start with? The the way that I like to liken it is if Game of Thrones opened one of their episodes with an executive summary and some charts and telling you everything that was going to happen about dragons and (laughs) everyone dying, (laughs) you probably wouldn't watch it, (laughs) right? But it's that human story piece that is yeah. so critical up front. And I actually teach something similar. Um, there's the TED Talk requirement. Every TED Talk requires a through line, which is this one single idea that every single idea can hook onto into your talk, which is definitely not what happens a lot <laughs> in the mm-hmm. corporate arena. So when I'm kind of testing to see any idea should be included in the main piece, I imagine it hooking onto a rope that's this through line. And if it can't hook on, guess where it goes? Mm -hmm. Right to that appendix. Yeah. We call that a a big idea. My girlfriend, um, Victoria LeBalm, yeah, she came up through acting and and she'd come up with that through line concept of connecting it to acting quite like about a decade ago, I guess that's when I met her. So definitely it works for story. It works for presenting. Um, and, and you have to use it as a filter, uh, to filter out. It's just as important to filter out as it is. Yeah. So once you've gone your, with your journey through data, you found the opportunity and then you figure out the action to take from that opportunity. Let's say that would be your big idea or your through line, but that's the thing that everything needs to hang from or else it shouldn't be in the talk or it shouldn't be in the front end of that. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I I love getting different names for things because it helps kind of give different visuals that people can use. Um, so actually this is a really good segue into two questions. I've waited years to ask you, (laughs) (laughs) no, Uh no, no pressure. Um, so there's 
kind of two request types that we get from stakeholders. And when being asked on how to handle these, I've kind of given my best shot, but I've always been curious how, um, you know, the real leaders do it. One of the requests is you actually gave a great example. A stakeholder will ask for all the numbers in a table. And, you know, in the background that I've learned with Stephen Few and and others, tables are like the kiss of death in a live presentation for visual Mm -hmm. reasons. So at some point, do we just give what our stakeholders are asking for because they're comfortable with it? Or do we try to inspire or push through a new paradigm because they don't necessarily know what's best for them? Mm-hmm. That's a good question. What's interesting about the example I gave you is the tables are like the um, the way communication goes up and down the organization. They don't necessarily oh, present them in a in a public presentation, but it's like a, the lingua franca, the visual way that everybody processes reports quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, what's gotcha. interesting is is I do think internally there are stakeholders. You have your board, you have your partners, you have your investors, right? How do you do an earnings call? How do you represent that? Like there's just a lot of data that an organization has to represent, not just internally, which can be a little bit more like whatever's the internal shorthand. Mm-hmm. But the minute you go out to stakeholders, the minute you go broader, then you have to change that. You have to make it consumable by right. more constituents. So I get this question kind of a lot. It's like, if you are a biochemist and you're solving cancer, right, you can go to a conference and everything can be complex, logarithmic, the same (laughs) way all the other cancer researchers, to them, it is visual shorthand. To them, this is Uh, how we process our data. So they're in a situation with their peers, with their industry, and you can talk visual shorthand by having what to you and I might seem to be more complicated charts. But the minute that biochemist shows up to talk to a group of women who are recovering from breast cancer, they sure as better not talk that way. Like they have to (laughs) translate all these findings into a way that's empathetic and understanding Mm. and clear, right? So, So I look at some pretty complex things can be visual shorthand, but the minute you go with a broad audience, you got to turn it into a pie, a bar, or a line. It's just not, right. or the pie could be a waterfall chart. It's just parts of a whole. <laughs> but, but it's like, that's it. That's it. It's common, classic, shared understanding of how you read a chart. Um, you have to convert it to that when you speak to a broad audience. That makes sense. Using as common spoken in a language as yeah, possible. Exactly. A shared language. Yeah. I, lo- I love that. And by the way, Nancy's book has an amazing section on choosing the right chart for your particular message. So it's an amazing resource for that. That's a, another big question that a lot of my followers ask. So then the, here's the second request. I've always been curious. A lot of stakeholders ask to receive the deck prior to the actual meeting, like as a pre-read, because they Mm -hmm. want to make sure that they know what happened and they know what to ask. So I have lots of opinions on this request and uh, a process around it, but I want to understand what your perspective is. Yeah, it depends on who your stakeholder is. So if my stakeholder is someone who's called me to do a public talk or a talk to their company, a lot of times they want my deck so they can get the technology ready, put it on their mm. machine, make sure. sure the fonts work, the movies play. That That's one form of a stakeholder. Um, mm-hmm. Another form might, if it's the executive suite and they want a pre-read, you better give them a pre-read. <laughs> like you just okay. do what they say. So I, my learning style, people here know that if they have an important meeting and they 
want my feedback, they should send a slide doc as a read ahead. Mm. I always read it before the meeting the night before I make note. I literally, yeah, I kill a tree. I print it. I write physical <laughs> notes because I'm at my computer all day. So I enjoy going home with a small stack and I read mm. paper. It feels like I'm reading a book, but I get through it. And then we talk about the difference. We spend the whole meeting talking about the gaps. They don't, they, I don't have to take time reading it. I don't have, mm. you know, and, and I understand it. So that's my way of working. If you are, um, it's kind of weird if you're talking to venture capitalists and you're sending them something here in the Valley, they don't work under an NDA. So I'd be very careful. Oh. I would, I would not send anything ahead because some of them steal ideas, open up companies the very next Monday. So you just got to know. So you got to know who you know, and you got to know the right people before I would send anything ahead that has a, 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 jaw-dropping new idea in it. I wouldn't <laughs> let that float around digital. Um, I would have somebody be my um, sponsor or my representative to the VC world to, so that you make sure the ones that don't rip each other off don't rip each other. So it's just, I guess I'm still getting to, it depends on the audience. It depends mm -hmm. on your stakeholders and it depends on how they work. Um, so I, I send read-aheads. I don't have a problem with that. I send agendas ahead of time. Mm -hmm. I let my stakeholder change the agenda. I let them shape it. You know, so I'll say, this is what I think would be best use of our time, you know, and then, and then do you, do you like read aheads? Do you like this? Do you like follow up? And I let them choose, um, especially if it's a customer, especially if it's a customer, I let the sure. customer drive um, how the meetings run. That's great. And, you know, it helps me reflect because I've had a slightly different philosophy, but I'm always malleable where a lot of times I, f I wondered if the pre-read request was coming from a trust, a lack of trust issue, mm -hmm. where they weren't exactly sure they were going to get what they were hoping to. So they would make sure to read everything in advance so that they could focus on the gaps, exactly like what you just said. Yeah. And then when going into that room, you're trying to use storytelling techniques like anticipation and suspense and things like that, but they already know the story. So, Oh, I see. You're talking more like a sales <laughs> cycle or something. Are you kind of talking about a bit of a sales kind of situation? Or? Not necessarily. Just more like walking in and saying, okay, this is our quarterly readout. We found some really interesting insights for you. First, this is what we found. This is why we think it's happening. And this is how you know we uh, plan on approaching it. But Built with um, slide builds and showing like we found this at first, but then we found this it, incorporating those ways felt like the the presenter was really the narrator um, and the guide. And that role was a little bit compromised if they learn the whole story in advance. Mm -hmm. So that's why I'm I curious. Think what was interesting is I grappled with that when I was writing the book, because there's two different energies around why we need to communicate. One of them is getting decisions made quickly. Decisions made quickly. So if it's in service of making a decision, that's different than the fourth section of the book, which is making the data stick. So huh. you're uh, communicating up and down an organization to the board, to this, to that, to get it to a decision. Once the decision's made, that spins out a lot of action, a lot of mm -hmm. activities, a lot of things need to happen based on that decision. That's when you need to inspire with data. That's when the reveals and the suspense and oh, the up okay. and down, the build, the rise and fall of tension is when you're trying to get people to take action from the decision that was just made mm -hmm. by, you know, through presenting up and down, then decisions are made. So I, 
I've noticed that in an organization, if you're trying to get to decision-making quickly, that's about what the first three quarters of this is to get to the decision. Mm, okay. Then the decision's made. Then we use time. We use the reveal. We use, we can change the emotional energy around data. It's still data, but revealing it over time adds that suspense and surprise. Right. And all those other elements are when you're talking to a broader audience and trying to do like organizational change or, or an earnings call. I mean, like those kinds of things are over time just by the nature of it. So you can build some of that in when the default is to use time. But most of the time, much of the data and the analysts and analysis that we're doing is uh, better off as a red document mm, sometimes, a lot of times. So that's why Slide Docs is also a big part of this book. Yeah, I I had first discovered Slide Docs. I think I I read Slideology first, so I know it was mentioned in there. And it was a really interesting midpoint between the actual presentation and the slide you meant, uh, <laughs> which, uh, which Gar. I, yeah. Gar had coined, of, which is what we're used to seeing. And I love the thoughtfulness. of. An, so if you're looking for a really interesting different way of a midpoint between a presentation and just a straight up handout, it can function as a handout as well. That's a really interesting format to look at. Um, what I've typically done is I've given a sneak peek I've teased out some of the areas that we would touch on in a presentation, like we're going to save most of the story for the live event, but uh, we just want to let you know, like, these are the points, like you said, the agenda where we hit on. And this is, we were seeing an initial insight, like this was happening. We dug a bit deeper, found something really interesting, and then kind of continued that way. So they'd have some sense, they weren't going in blind, but kind of left them hopefully with an appetite for wanting to show up. <laughs> what, what, who would us, that's interesting to me. Who would your stakeholder be? Like who's the typical stakeholder where you use that process? Cause that process makes total sense to me. Sure. So in my role as a digital analyst, I was presenting to directors of marketing, mm-hmm. um, directors, uh, probably mostly directors up to C-level in any sort of marketing, um, sometimes even finance, but for me, predominantly in the marketing department. Yeah. And a lot of times when after you're done presenting, it's going to require them to either spend differently or Mm -hmm. make bets in certain places. So I could see how they could just react to something and not understand the narrative around it. So that makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Cool. All right. Phew. So (laughs) um, one of the things I love that you talk about in the book are story arcs and I have to t- let everyone know there's this very enthusiastic fly who won't <laughs> leave me alone. <laughs> He's just You're loving keeping it together really He's well. Loving every word. <laughs> um, so you talk about breaking your story into acts, which is something that I think people can relate to, you know, if they know anything about theater or film. So how can presenters leverage these story arcs in presentations that are especially heavy on numbers and technical jargon? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So in, in here, there's a framework for how do you describe what your data story is? And that's a quick, short little thing. Could even be the title of your slide doc if you wanted it to be. Mm-hmm. But it shouldn't take more than than. 20, 30 seconds, and it uses the classic three-act story structure. So classic three-act story structure is you set up 
what's the current situation? And then the middle has some sort of complication. We call it the messy middle. Um, <laughs> it's like messy. And then there's the third act where it's resolved. So in, mm-hmm. in a movie, say, the first act is only 10% and the third act is 10%. And that middle is about 80%. And that's where all the action happens. Right. It's where the big car chases and the boy gets the girl. Oh, he loses the girl, you know, gets impaled, has to climb out of a pit. Like that's where <laughs> a lot of the action What are happens. you watching, so, Nancy? I know. I need to... <laughs> Well, right now I'm watching The Crown. I have I'm catching up. So gotcha. I just started. Super sweet. But anyway, the three acts. It, when when you plug the data in, um, the first act of a data story is: look, I found a problem or an opportunity in the data. Like that, you mm-hmm. state the current situation. The middle is the most important part because that's the number, the data point that you want to change. You mm. might want that data go up because it's an opportunity. You might want it to go down because you found a problem. Whatever it is, but that's the number you want to have changed. That's your messy middle. And then the third act are the action steps you're going to take to uh, create a happy ending or create the kind of outcome you want. So if you do the action in the third act, it should change the number of the messy middle. Sounds complicated, but it's super simple. So it's... (laughs) So it's basically situation complication and what we're going to do to make that complication resolve is how it works. Right. And and the way that I like to look at it is that you, each of us are playing character roles. I, I liken it to Star Wars where the villain or Darth Vader are the challenges and obstacles yeah. that you're finding in that messy middle and that reveal themselves, I guess, in the... That's the cool. beginning. Yeah. Um, but we are that guide and narrator and it's yeah. and the audience is the hero, right? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, that's great. And I just finished reading a book called Expert Secrets by Russell Brunson, where he talks about the hero's two journeys. And the value of it is having your audience have an epiphany that you had in order yeah. to create the influence that you need to have them take that action. It's not having their own epiphany. It's helping recreate the one that you had for them. So yeah, I love that. I'm gonna go pick. I'm gonna go pick that up. I haven't picked that up. <laughs> it's yet. all about webinars, which is why I was reading it. But the whole hero's journey section was absolutely fascinating. That's so cool. I think you would like it. Um, that's awesome. So that's definitely. I mean, the book explains the whole process for that. Um, so I highly recommend it. But I do want to get into actually some of the behavioral elements and dynamics between presenters and executives, because I think this is where the real gold is to be found. So you talked about executives cutting in and interrupting. (laughs) I love that you talked about this. This It's a big gripe in my field. Oh, they don't get it. They're trying to undermine me and make me look bad. You know, so what should presenters do in this situation? Is it actually something that needs to be fixed? Yeah, I love that. I'm like a master at interrupting people <laughs> and interrogating them. And I, I try to explain what's going on in my mind at the time. So I think a lot of people who lead were obsessing about the future, just obsessing. And mm-hmm. and you can only see in the future dimly. I mean, that's what even sacred texts say. You can mm-hmm. kind of see it, but you see it dimly. And I can see enough to know I'm headed in the right direction. But if there's a little gap here or there or there, where I want clarity, I want like a moment of real clarity, I'll interrupt and I'll make sure I get that moment of clarity. And then I'm, that's all I needed from you. I just needed this one bit from you. Mm. And if this person's like painting a picture of the entire mosaic of the entire scene that everybody else already sees, I'll need that. I want to go and get what I need from you and get just that. And so, um, 
their execs are busy and, and, and they're briefed all day. I mean, they're just getting briefed yes. all day and the purpose of the briefing is for them to make a decision. So the person should be able to leave the room and them say, yes, you got your hundred million dollar budget. No, don't move forward with that. Yes. Go mm. that come back with this right all day long. That's what they're telling people. Okay. So if someone's rambling, somebody's going a direction that they don't <laughs> think never happens never <laughs> they're overproducing so much content they're like right. well, no, tell me what is the decision you've made because mm. they just want they want a strategic advisor they don't want mm. somebody that's more like an individual contributor kicking up the dust of a bunch of charts kicking up the dust of a bunch of data and not having a finely tuned data story where it's like here's the situation here's the data we're going to turn around and here's how we're going to turn that data around it's that's all they need to know most of the time that's keeping it at a bigger level. One of the things that was interesting that I loved, um, I looked at all of the, uh, a bunch of charts, thousands of charts of the highest performing brands, seven brands we have that are the highest performing on the stock market. And we pulled just the data slides and I picked apart, sussed out just the parts of speech. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing were the verbs. Because if you think about mm. taking an action from data, the verb is one of the more important words you're going to pick because that's the action verb. Right. And I found that there was a, a there's certain verbs that appeal to the executive suite because they're performance verbs, mm. and then there's other verbs that are the verbs you're using as a process to get things done. And so one of the things, if you're communicating up, if they don't see it as something that they are personally measured by, and if they don't see it as something that is going to help their performance, they're not going to be interested. They're going to wonder mm -hmm. why you're in front of them because that's on their mind all the, all the, all the, all the time. Right. So if it doesn't, if it doesn't tie to money or markets or exposure, it's, you shouldn't even probably be in front of them. But if you can tie your idea to one of those and your data mm -hmm. solves one of those, then you should have a suite, a, a seat at the executive suite. Um, and then your verb choices are, are, are interesting because you could say, ah, we need to capture market share, or you could say we mm. need to disrupt the whole market, right? <laughs> They're just completely different types of energies that would have different types of supporting activities based on data. And so it is, I am asking people to be a take, pause a bit and actually craft words carefully. Mm. And, and that'll kind of grease the skids for the executive suite too, when you're presenting to them. Yeah, your book offered an amazing primer on mindful language, just the different adjectives and verbs that can be used. I don't think a lot of thought or conscious thought is put into this before yeah. we go in. We just speak our normal English language, but that was actually something new for even me to think about. So super helpful. And I love what you said. Your executives want a strategic advi uh, advisor, not someone kicking up dust and not saying how hard this was how complex exactly. it was, how long it took you. <laughs> say that, yeah. you know, say, tell, tell your boss, like, of course, like reflect on all that hard work, but it's not what they're well, asking for. Well, that's the for. power, I think, <laughs> of the slide doc, right, is you can mm -hmm. present what you have, but man, when you send your deck and it's got freaking 200 slides oh. in it and all you're thinking there, it's awesome. Like yeah. keep the message short and to the tight, right. but once they see like, whoa, this person put a lot of energy into making sure this was the right decision, it actually can kind of help. If you, mm -hmm. if you keep some of that in there, keep the front tight, but, and they, they'll interrupt. And while you're going through your tight narrative, if you have 
their answer as an appendix in the slide. So we we create this like agenda slide. You can hit a lot of people don't know, but if you're in slideshow mode, say in PowerPoint, you can hit the number one key and enter and you're back to the front of your deck. It goes to slide number one. You can have mm. this interactive panel there where if they ask a question, you could hit a button and it'll jump to any section in PowerPoint. You could just jump oh. to a whole new section. So oh. if they ask a question about a slide and you have your appendix really organized, you can jump to that exact section of those exact charts that support that idea that you're making. So you can have this like uh, interactive slide one that you, you know, you skip over it when you're presenting, but you could keep coming back to that slide and jumping to any section in your deck if they want to jump out and start to talk about things in your appendix. That's a fantastic trick. And I think that just satisfied your upgrade requirement for this episode of the one <laughs> neat little trick or, or tool. Um, that one is really major because a lot of times someone will ask to go back or you want to reference something else and you you escape out and you're kind of yeah. fumbling around and that can be a really slick way to not yeah. lose all, not lose momentum uh, from having the mic. Yeah. Um, it's cool. Cause it could be like navigable and it be your information architecture. You'll look even smarter. <laughs> if that's possible. That's always smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I actually, I love the mindset that you have around interruption because people feel that it's actually such a character flaw on the part of the person communicating. But I think that if you can stop in the moment of going, oh, I'm doing something wrong, or why are they doing that, of saying, oh, there must be a gap, and they just need clarity. Yeah. Yeah, my husband shares an office with me, and he's this calm, sweet, you know, introverted guy, ran finance IT, like total <laughs> classic. He, he'll run a quick report for me, and, and he's semi-retired, so he's doing fine art just two mornings a week now. But we shared the office for years, and he's like, the sheer velocity of your workday <laughs> is exhausting me. Like all he does is get, you know, he just has to listen to it. And it's true. I mean, the capacity mm. that an exec has to get an enormous amount of work done and, and we don't turn it off at night. Like it's when we go to bed at no. night, it's when we wake up because I have 120 plus 40 contractors that rely mm. on my business decision today for them to have a job in 18 months. And I don't take that wow. lightly. It's on my mind all the time. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I used to look out there and be like at the cars in the parking lot and be like, what do I need to do to upgrade all the brands of all the cars in the parking oh, lot, right? <laughs> I love that. And now it's like, I just always want them to have a job here. I don't want to make a stupid mistake oh. that makes us take a turn. And and it, it is oddly, even though sometimes we're short or abrupt, it's in service of human flourishing most of the time. Now, there are some real idiots or bad people out there, but most <laughs> of us are are in it for the employees themselves. So it's almost ironic or... or um, Irony might not be the right word, but yeah. <laughs> no, I, I hear what you're saying. And what I think I, I realize that that gives you a very distinct perspective on teaching people how to present information because you are that C level. You are the, also the decision maker where a lot of presentation consultants like myself, you know, I'm in a company of like, three. you're your own, <laughs> right? <laughs> to convince myself. Um, but no, that, that makes a lot of sense about the tremendous pressure that you're under and your own measures. So, you know, putting on that hat, you know, I loved hearing about that. It's important to remember that executives are weighing the risk versus the reward of your recommendation before they yeah. approve it. So what makes for a recommendation that gets approved by Nancy? Ooh, ooh, that's a really good question. <laughs> you know, I, um, I think that, um, 
recommendations where they don't weigh both. Like I think every every time you're going into um, a decision, there is a risk or a reward. And so I try to teach people to look at both. Mm -hmm. But when they've been really thoughtful, like I've got one of my execs, she comes in, it's printed, she hands me her printout. I know every time she's always got, I don't even have to turn the page. I know she's got it backed up and I know she's been very thoughtful and thought deeply through it. So the conversation becomes, what's the decision? Why should I make it? Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's interesting is then they've all learned to anticipate my questions. So, because mm. they don't write it to your point, you feel like you just got, you know, stripped or I don't know why people perceive it that way, but sometimes they feel like, oh, she just stripped me down and, right. you know, and they, and then I teach them, you have to learn to, um, so it got to the place with my data analyst where he would say, okay, well, here's this chart, whatever. And I would say, oh, but what about blah, blah, blah. He'd be like, happen to have run that chart for you. Click the tab. Oh, snap. And then I'd be like, oh, that's interesting because blah, 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 blah. And he'd be like, thought of that too, bink. But it oh, took about a year and a half. Funny. Right? Yeah. Where it's like, oh, and, and knew, like knew the new question that would come up. And even though I asked for this one thing. He didn't have to go away, book another one-on-one, come back with the answer. He he knew my line of thought mm. and knew what would come back. So I think that that's what I value is something that's a bit thought through because then what I'll do is exactly what the book says. I'll say, well, what about this, 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 this? And maybe they prepared 24 things and I only asked questions about four. I antis- That means I anticipated the other 18, highly likely. Um, and we get a lot done here. I mean, the pace that my firm works, maybe it's because we're deadline driven, you know, <laughs> like we're constantly have a deadline, but people here are smart and, and we rip through content quickly and, and make decisions, um, really fast. Yeah. That's awesome. And it, it actually plays perfectly into one of my next points was around playing your own skeptic and crafting your own counter arguments to your stuff. I, uh, I've been yeah. doing that for a few years now, trying oh, to anticipate good. what is that one person going to argue or ask about when I yeah. present this. And it's so powerful because, you know, to bring up expert secrets again, funny enough is for him, the whole uh, presentation, the whole persuasiveness of presentation mm-hmm. is not necessarily in teaching something new, but mm-hmm. it's in breaking the limiting beliefs that they have around accepting your information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I love that because you have to anticipate all the ways you'll get resistance. And Mm -hmm. I touch on it and resonate by saying that there's a physics phenomenon that happens when you capture the wind resistance. Uh You actually, your little sailing vessel will go faster than the wind itself. So you Mm -hmm. need to highly leverage the resistance. And sometimes you might not even be able to anticipate how someone might resist, but it helps to um, share your ideas, show the conclusions you're drawing and have people challenge. And even if it's a brainstorm to say, think of the dorkiest way, the dumbest (laughs) data, the most obvious thing that someone might try to throw into this to try to disrupt it or be a skeptic and explore all of them and go get data sets that say uh, the opposite and, and then either disprove them or acknowledge that this other truth is out there. So I think people approach so much with bias, so much. And um, I think in data, it can become a real travesty to, to approach it that way. Yes, for sure. Oh my gosh, I love it. So before we fully kind of transition to the big question. I would love to know what gets you excited about the future of data storytelling and presentation? Because I mean, the the examples that I've seen Duarte produces are 
the cutting edge of animation and narrative and everything. So what are you seeing that excites you? I'm excited. We are, um, my favorite thing right now is that we're seeing a lot of leaders adopt story mm. in a way that's been unprecedented. So I, for years, we used to work a lot with the exec com, like executive communications or people internally, and they would just bemoan the fact that <laughs> this this person of all people, they're arrogant, they're, they're, you know, they won't tell stories. They're just kind of desperate to see their leaders be storytellers. And we're mm. seeing a real movement there. It's taken a long time, but we're seeing really good movement where leaders are really uh, being authentic and transparent and telling stories. Um, so that part is exciting to me because I think it's just a tipping. Um, we're seeing a lot more um, planning and strategic thinking around causes, like a lot around diversity and inclusion. How do we take this and don't just think we can stand up and do one presentation on Tuesday and solve it, people are starting to realize it's a sequence. It's a whole series of communication right. to change minds and to change a culture. And that, so they're looking at not just their next talk, right. but they're looking at, oh my God, I'm starting a movement. And how do I actually transform that movement? So that's fun. And, and then on the, even the presentation side, we're just skinning. I mean, we're skinning environments with just these immersive, mm. you know, transformative moments, which is fun. A lot of the big staged events are getting sure. Really technically beautiful and stunning. <laughs> and that's fun. And then um, the, on the coaching side, it's just humbling to stand mm. in the room with some of the people my team stands in the room with, <laughs> which shall go unnamed. But it, it's just, I don't know. I just, I don't know. I'm pretty and to watch excited. that transformation that you oh, have yeah. to enable. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This do, you have, fun. do you have any examples of either, you know, the more technically immersive or where even leaders are adopting that story where you've been like, wow, we're making advancements as a species? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, we did a lot of research. I had a summer where we did 11 labs. I, I said, I'll buy whatever technology you need, you know, within reason. And and we'll do, what, where do we think it's going? How are people going to present in 40 years? Mm. And so, of course, there was a lot of buying of AR, VR head sets, just lots of activities that we needed to do. And we did. And, and it, I mean, I think there's some use cases where AR could be interesting. Ah, v yeah. VR, VR is kind of lonely. Yeah. Um, and we were like, well, how, how is this going to, how's it going to impact the future? I think, I think anything that creates meaning is more important than anything that has technical wizardry. Sure. Right? And so it, it really needs to help kind of to the point we were talking about earlier, like you shouldn't just have things swoosh and build or animate or leverage time unless it actually, you know, amplifies the message. And so um, we're kind of back to the roots of really, 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 it's about human connection mm -hmm. and what is the best way to make human connection in the room. And if we think the technology, like if we think all of the screen should go off and the room should go dark, the screens are coming off and the room's going dark. Like if that's <laughs> the right moment, right, to say, right. and at this moment have the house lights all shut down, like we would do that because it's really about the power of how people feel in the moment and not about the wizardry, you know, behind the graphics or the, how, what got projection mapped in the room. Right. You know, it's only if it adds meaning, do I think it's significant? I don't know how many people leave a big event and say, Oh, remember when that thing spun on the screen, right? <laughs> they, you know, they would remember something about a story or about a, something that helped them get unstuck. Yeah. It's so true. You know, the most, some of the most memorable Ted talks I've seen yeah we're just a person in a black screen in a stool 
telling yep. something so gripping. And I, it's funny, The Lion King, I have Broadway on the brain for some reason today. Um, the <laughs> Lion King came to mind where the effects are not the most technologically advanced. There's a rudimentary nature to them. But even without those effects, which can be so dazzling, there would be nothing if it were only the effects. It could stand alone if it were just yeah. a choir of singers singing the incredible music and telling the yeah. story. It could True. live as that. The fly agrees. <laughs> I think you're doing fantastic. I can see the fly. <laughs> I am one with the fly. So uh, I'd like to ask the final question. Now, I want you to think hard here and imagine this very plausible scenario. You are hiking through Mission Peak State Park when you suddenly trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. What are you presenting about, if you remember? And what would today you say to yesterday you? How funny, because I do hike Mission Peak. That's so funny. <laughs> how um, did I know that? <laughs> how did you know that? <laughs> wow. I, I I mean, as you were saying, I'm like, wow, my earliest. I do remember in the fifth grade dancing <laughs> to Tiny Bubbles with my Hawaiian girlfriend, but that was more show and tell. <laughs> I'm trying to, I can't remember my first time I stood and delivered earlier than college, oddly. Mm, me too. Um, yeah, so I, I'm trying to think of, um, of of any earlier and what happened actually in college in my speech communications class is I did a good job on my visual aids and this is pre PowerPoint right and pre mm. they didn't even have the projection the overhead projector like what you had right. and um, I always had great visual aids because like if I talked about heartworm disease in your dog I brought a little jar of heartworms in or whatever eee. and. What was interesting is, as the teacher, I got a good grade at that, but I got a terrible grade at um, bringing content to the table that was relevant to the class. And mm. that's where I got a really bad grade. So it was almost like I got an F in empathy. Right? I wasn't <laughs> thinking about, and I really wore it like a, I don't, it was like the scarlet letter on yeah. my chest, right? Okay. And so I think I would say to my younger self that, um, don't worry, you'll figure it out. So all my books are models. I don't. I don't know if you could tell, but they're all models uh, for empathy, mostly for myself, mm -hmm. because I didn't get a good score in that mm -hmm. growing up, right? So that's kind of what I think I'd say is don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry. We'll figure it out. That teacher gave you a C and you're fine. <laughs> that's yeah. what I would say. <laughs> oh, but that is such a super valuable lesson. And I think that lesson has permeated so much of what you teach with your audience assessment and who yeah. are they? What, what is keeping them up at night? What do they desire most? So yeah. I'm grateful for that <laughs> hard lesson. <Thank> you. <laughs> <laughs> so Nancy, unfortunately, our time has run out. Ugh, we covered so many amazing things. But please tell the listeners where they can keep up with you. Cool. So we are at Duarte.com, D-U-A-R-T-E. And I'm on Twitter at Nancy Duarte. We have a Facebook page for Duarte. We're also at Duarte on Twitter. And I do connect to everyone who connects to me on LinkedIn. So this is true. That's how we roll. This yeah. is true. And uh, your book is available right now. Mm -hmm. uh, the links for all of your books that we mentioned, all of the resources uh, will be on the show notes page. 
And I guarantee that this new book is going to become an invaluable asset to your library. So once again, it is an immense honor, Nancy. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was so fun. You did oh, a great Hugh, job. So glad to hear you say that. <laughs> and I really hope our paths cross again. That would be fun. Take Thank care. you. Oh, these are the moments where I'm so glad I ran into a wall with my presentations 10 years ago and I started empowering myself with information. If I knew back then while reading Resonate and Slideology that I'd be chatting it up with Nancy right here, I would have been like, don't stop now, girl. Keep going. I know this is so hard. You could do it. (laughs) And that's the power of learning to present effectively because There's no question in my mind that creating my credibility and becoming indispensable this way is exactly what led to this moment. And it can lead to a moment like that for you. So to catch all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 050. I'd love for you to leave me or Nancy a comment or suggestions because I want to hear about the challenges you face when you're presenting your vital information. And remember to join me for my Three Secrets webinar tomorrow at either 2 p.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern through the link on the show notes page or at leahpeka.com slash three secrets with the number three. We've already got a ton of registrations, so you do not want to miss out on this one. And I'll leave you with today's presentation inspiration by, of course... Nancy Duarte. And this is from her amazing book, which again, you must run out and buy. And it is, ah, communication. It can be hard, but the payoffs are extraordinary. If you put the work into developing communication skills, you'll see your career and company do things you never thought imaginable. I could not agree with this more. Investing in data storytelling and communication skills was single-handedly the investment with the highest ROI I've made in my career and life. And I feel blessed to accompany you on this journey to indispensability. That's it for today. Hop on over to leahpeka.com slash three secrets to learn the keys you won't find anywhere else. Stay warm. Namaste. And namago. But this fly is driving me crazy. Ton of registration. Ton of registration. Yeah. (laughs) Just what are the odds, right? That is. And who is this person now? Now I'm curious. It's beautiful. I love it.